You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order. Overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jess Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing Eye of the Needle, released July 24th, 1981. It was written by Stanley Mann, based on the novel by Ken Follett, directed by Richard Marquand, and released by United Artists. Ken Follett's novel of the same name was first published in 1978 and quickly won the 1979 Edgar Award from the Mystery Writers of America. An earlier draft of the story bore the title Storm Island, which I don't think makes as good a title as the movie title. Uh, I mean, I think it makes a little bit more sense than Eye of the Needle, uh, because I was really trying to stretch what was like. He's called the Needle, and he took photographs, which is like the eye, his eyes (laughs) saw something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe Eyes of the Needle would have been a better title but mm. either way i think it sounds more cinematic than storm island yeah which just sounds like a kid's show <laughs> this week on storm island <laughs> yeah exactly for the production the island of mull possibly pronounced mule off the coast of scotland is standing in for the possibly fictional storm island at least i was unable to confirm the existence of an island called storm island but if i'm wrong listeners please let us know The way it was filmed makes it look fairly remote and uninhabited, but it does have villages, castles, and tourist spots. The same island appears in Tim Burton's Dark Shadows, playing the part of the coastal cliffs of Collinsport, though most of the landscapes of that film are heavily CG'd over. The cottage and lighthouse were built specifically for the film, with the assistance of an island resident to ensure accuracy to the area and construction style. I feel like that seems like a dangerous thing to do. What? Build a fake lighthouse on the coast. <laughs> I think they built it real as if they were going to build a lighthouse there. Mm. They, uh, they did the same thing for Pete's Dragon. They built a fully functional they, they lighthouse. Built, they built a full lighthouse. Yeah. And then... Elements of the same story appear in the 2006 Bollywood film Fana, replacing the Lucy character with an Indian woman and Faber character with a Kashmiri terrorist posing as an Indian army officer. That sounds very confusing. Yeah. <laughs> Over the credits, we hear a man's voice speaking on a radio. The man reports Allied losses during the German bombings of London. We see hundreds of soldiers with duffel bags over their shoulders boarding trains on a crowded platform. The radio voice spells out how the reaction to these attacks could decide the fate of the world as we know it. Soldiers are ordered onto the trains as they stop, and we see Donald Sutherland as Henry Faber crossing the platform in a blue suit. A title reads, London, 1940. He walks with another officer to a nearby military office. When the phone rings on his desk, he stands to look out the window and reports an observation. Three that I can see from here. Cheers. Later we see a line of people clocking out for the day and Faber punches his card. A young acquaintance named Billy stops by to say hello and announce that he's trying again to join the war effort. He's been rejected in the past on account of his youth, and Faber warns him that he doesn't look any older than the last time he interviewed with the army. Faber and Billy ride their bikes through downtown London, past completely demolished buildings and piles of rubble in the street. What about the Navy, Billy? Yeah, well, I've been thinking about the Navy, but, well, I can't swim a stroke. 
Oh, then the Air Force is out. Why? Well, you haven't got wings, have you? We cut across town to a wedding reception. The bride, Lucy Rose, tells her husband David that she's going to change out of her wedding dress. We learn through David's conversation with other guests that he's scheduled to join his squadron in the Air Force tomorrow. He's already been introduced to the Spitfire he'll be piloting. Lucy's mother helps her out of her dress and decides on this moment to finally tell her married adult daughter about the birds and the bees. But Lucy <laughs> says she already knows. Yeah, I was like, oh boy, it's a it's a little late for this. Yeah, talk. which I, I guess it well, not I guess it, it will be brought up later in in the story. Like that. Oh yeah. It was silly of her. Yeah. But I like thinking from the mother's perspective of like, oh, God, I waited too long. I better tell her right now so she's not yeah. shocked when this happens tonight. But I didn't realize till later when she said she already knows that, like... That's specifically what she was talking about. Yeah. Lucy and David are shoved into a car and sent on their way. Faber finally gets home to the apartment he's renting. His landlady has saved him some supper since rations have hit the area hard. He tells her he just needs to pop up to his room first and he'll be right down. We cut to the newlyweds who pulled the car over for a moment to enjoy a bottle of Moet Chandon that Lucy snuck out of the reception. While David pours them some glasses of champagne, Lucy confesses to her mother's belated sex education attempt. Rather than wait patiently for Faber to come back downstairs, his landlady brings the meal to his room. When he doesn't answer the door, she uses her own key to unlock it and finds him sending Morse code transmissions from a device on his desk. But, like, why would you unlock a tenant's door when yeah. you know that they're home right wouldn't you know th- you think isn't that it locked on purpose like, mm-hmm. in there naked or something especially exactly. since he said he was just going to come back down my theory is that she did think he was in there naked oh and she went in because they were kind of flirty when he was downstairs but you know what i actually think this might not be his room was she not no she said she was going to bring him food does she because i feel okay because if it wasn't his room why would she like knock well, because I think I I think that she's got a, a, like a boarding house here, right? Yeah, and she has multiple tenants, and she was seeing if a different tenant, not him, was home, and, and so s- that's why she's extra suspicious s- to find him there using the well, device. and 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 because that person was not home, she's like, okay, they're not home. I'm it's locked. I'm going to go in and leave food for them for later. Mm. Oh, okay, and because I don't think she was, I don't think this was his room based on stuff that happens a little later. Somehow she gathers immediately that he's a spy and drops the meal in shock. Yeah, I didn't get this either. I didn't get, like, I think it would be suspicious that he's sending Morse code, but I wouldn't immediately go, he's a German spy. Yeah, I think I would wait for his explanation because he seemed prepared to give her one. And he's usually a pretty smooth talker, we'll find. Mm -hmm. He lies to her that it's classified work he's doing for the station on train movements, but she doesn't buy it for a second and totally freaks out. When he can't calm her down, he whips out a stiletto switchblade and stabs her deep in the chest. He sets her down on the floor to bleed out and returns to his transmission. Sometime later, we see him sending out more messages, with the corpse of his landlady still sprawled out across the floor behind him. Now, are we to assume that the phone call he was on earlier where he said, I can see three of them from here? That's the only explanation I can think of for it, Mm -hmm. that he was telling them, trains are leaving right now. Someone called to ask about it. But... I would be worried about doing that from the military office. Yeah. Unless they're using some sort of coding for it. Like someone's like, oh, how many clouds are out there today? Right. Oh, I can see three now. Right. I mean, because we're a long way from phone tracing. Right. Uh, but certainly there are probably people listening in on phone that, conversations. That would be my guess is that this wouldn't be a totally secure line. As he taps out a message, we see it on screen. 100,000 troops sent today. Destination, Finland. 
Back to the newlyweds and the freshly intoxicated David is now blasting down a country road at an unsafe speed. Coming around a corner, they nearly collide with a truck head-on and swerve to avoid it. Sorry, not a truck, a lorry. (laughs) (laughs) The car veers deep into a ravine and smashes straight down on its nose in the dirt below. Weirdly, though, we see a small explosion in the dirt before the car hits the ground. I'm sure they couldn't afford a second take demolishing this classic car. And just sits there for a moment. Yeah, with, it's like, pretty shocking. With birds chirping and things mm-hmm. in the background. It's like, oh man. Yeah, there's no score with it and there's no motion at all. So it's like, these people are either dead or hard unconscious. We hold on the car for a moment and then cut to Storm Island four years later. It looks like an island paradise. Tiny stone cottages on the edge of cliffs and no neighbors in sight. We cut inside the small house and find that Lucy and David have miraculously survived their head-on collision with the earth. Lucy is even up and about doing dishes, but David is sitting at the table in a wheelchair beside their son, Joe, and Lucy's mother, who's just visiting but on her way out shortly. So we can only assume that she was pregnant at the time. Right, the which, which, is what, which is what I know meant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Because she, she was she, already pregnant. They'd already, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were, yeah, they were getting married in a hurry because he's being shipped off, and she needed a husband because she was pregnant. Right. But like, I feel really stupid because it took me like half the movie to realize these were the same people that were just in that uh-huh. crash. Because I was like, oh, okay, next storyline. Because I, I assumed they were dead, and these were not the right. same people. Well, I had to back it up because I was like, did that say four years later or four years earlier? Like, are we flashing <laughs> back in time? Because those people could not have survived that crash. And for her to be 100% fine yeah, is well, exa- crazy. Exactly. Like no it, scar on her face or anything. It never occurred to me that these would be the same people until she's like, oh, we got no, later she says we got into an accident. And yeah. I was like, oh, that was that was you guys. <laughs> that wasn't some other storyline <laughs> we're going to come back to. That wasn't some other random storyline. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like the accident shouldn't have been as incredibly dramatic sure yeah like you can, it should have been like just swerved off the road and you don't see it hit the ground yeah or 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 show her coming out of unconsciousness and trying to wake him up just so yeah. we know that that there's a chance that they survive <laughs> yeah because <laughs> it does not look like there was a chance later we see lucy and joe walking her mother to a boat on a dock that will take her mom back to the mainland another older gentleman named tom puts two sheep in the boat as a parting gift to lucy's parents to cope with rations. Tom is evidently another resident of the island and a good friend of Lucy and David's. Lucy also reports him to be a perpetual drunk after he almost falls off the dock waving goodbye. The ship in the harbor toots its horn as if to summon Lucy's mother and they part ways. We cut to Berlin as a Mercedes pulls into a Nazi communication hub. The car's driver is delivering a message directly from Hitler and we cut to Faber sitting in the grass beside a river with a fishing pole set up and another wireless transmission device disguised as a picnic basket. Uh, I'm kind of hoping that the pole is also doubling as an antenna. An antenna? antenna? That'd be great. Mm. I didn't even think about that. The team at the Nazi headquarters are quick to react to Faber's message. We see Faber receiving their response. Meet Muller, tonight, 2100 hours. He sends back, require purpose meeting. And then he hears, repeat, meet Muller, tonight, orders highest authority which he presumably understands means Hitler specifically. That night, we see Faber peeking around a street corner as a car pulls up, stops, and the driver lights a cigarette inside. High in a neighboring building, we see something glowing inside a window and moving around as if to send a message back to the driver. Faber notices Muller walking down a sidewalk and heading into a building. Muller climbs the spiral staircase to the top floor. 
He uses a key to enter room number 55, but he is suddenly shoved out of the doorframe by Faber, who tackles him onto the bed. Faber has determined that the gestures he saw outside mean that Muller has a tail, and we cut to a room full of British agents who seem to have eyes on the room, and potentially ears. Someone's in with Muller. Good. We'll give them 60 seconds and then go in. Faber informs Muller how sloppy he's been, and Muller tries to explain in German, but weirdly Faber makes him switch to English. Obviously this is done for the sake of the viewing audience, but it would obviously make more sense to stay in German if British agents are listening. But then they probably, probably also understand yeah. German. Yeah. Muller says that Hitler has personally requested that Faber assess Patton's invasion force in East Anglia. Faber mentions aerial photographs that prove Patton is prepared to invade on that front, but apparently Hitler's astrologer believes that Normandy is the target. Faber seems annoyed that the Fuhrer has brought a psychic into this decision, but agrees to reassess the forces in East Anglia and get back to them by Morse code. Yeah, I, I kind of like this concept that the that the astrologer is correct yeah. in the end. I mean, I guess they had a 50-50 chance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it just reminded me of Archer. It's like, I gotta go start seeing that gypsy. Yeah, but I also just love how, like, pissed off you can tell he is. Like, his eyes roll back, like... As soon as he says astrologer, he's just like, oh my god, why are you guys wasting my time with this? Okay, fine, I'll do it. Muller says Morse code isn't good enough, and Hitler requires photographs to be delivered in person by Faber himself to be absolutely certain. He says he trusts you. He wants to hear from your own mouth. Well, I'm flattered. Muller gives Faber a map to Storm Island and tells him a U-boat will be ready to collect him there whenever he gives the signal between one and two weeks from now. And I think they said it'll listen for like 12 hours of the day. Yeah. Like 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. or right. something like that. Which, I, I mean, it's just crazy. But I'm like, yeah, I guess that's how you'd have to do this. Like, they're just sitting there on the radio for half the day waiting for you to say, hey, I'm here. Yeah. But then what happens if you don't show up? I guess they leave. They just wasted yep. two weeks. Yeah. It's crazy. The agents monitoring this interaction decide it's time to storm the room, and Faber stabs Muller in the chest because he doesn't trust him to not continue fucking up. Amazingly, the British surveillance team didn't have eyes on all points of egress, and Faber is able to escape out the window undetected. It's like, really? You wouldn't have a guy out there? You let them sit in here and talk for an extra, like, 20 minutes. We cut back to Storm Island, where David is in bed, drinking himself to sleep. Lucy tries to explain to him how much their son loves him, but David doesn't want to hear it. He resents his condition because he'll never be able to do simple things like take his son for a walk or a swim. David. I want him to be proud of me, don't I? To grow up like his father? A legless fucking joke. David flicks off the lights and complains to Lucy that she and her mother were probably making fun of him today. Lucy says that her mother has only concern for him. I don't need anyone's concern. And manage alone. I can't. The next morning, we follow an old woman up some stairs with a cup of tea, and we recognize the house as the one Faber was living in when he killed his landlady. The old woman pushes into the same door off the hall, and I was worried she was about to get a taste of Faber's stiletto again. But inside the room is another man we will come to know as Inspector Godlyman of Scotland Yard. We will come to know him as that. That is his name. Because I, I did not know who half the people were in this yeah. movie. Well, this guy is the main guy on Faber's trail, and okay. his name is Godlyman. Next to Cleanlyman. Yep. <laughs> they went through the academy together, and they have neighboring <laughs> desks. He seems to be checking the room for bugs, peeking into a hanging lamp. 
He verifies with the old woman that no one has rented the room in the four years since that woman was stabbed here, and she confirms. Four years? It's a long time to leave this room empty because of a murder. No, that cannot be what they said. It hasn't been four years since that happened, has it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was four years ago. Oh. See, I misunderstood. I thought he was saying nobody has rented this room in four years. No, I don't know. I don't. That that seems like a weird thing. It's been Doesn't four it years. seem crazy? Uh, unless... Did, wait, did, so... Yeah, yeah, I mean, I guess that's... Because uh, otherwise he wouldn't show him stabbing her to death before the Storm Island four years later title. Right, right. Uh, unless he st- continued to rent that room, but that doesn't that doesn't line up with his mo of i don't think so either i mean unless they kept it empty out of respect for the woman but that still seems like a crazy thing to do if you know people need money and times are hard that you just leave a room empty for four years maybe i misunderstood that point so judge for yourself uh by watching the movie because it's not terrible Oh, I like the movie. Yeah. But I, 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 for some reason, what they said here made me think that this room wasn't rented to him. And they were trying to figure out who, like, because I think originally they're like, oh, he was murdered here. But that guy didn't do it. The, so it was, it was somebody else's room is what I understood oh, from okay. that scene. Maybe. What I took away from it was that he had rented the room up until recently. Oh, so like he was still renting the place? Yeah, he was still renting the place, but that doesn't Even make sense. Even though they found the body presumably four years ago. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Like, it doesn't make sense. And Billy they... seems to know it was him that did it. So. Yeah. Oh, that's right. I forgot that Billy knows that he did it. Yeah. So everyone, how did- How did, how did they... he get away with this for four years? Yeah. How is he still a spy in this country? I don't know. We cut to an airfield where Billy appears to have finally joined the armed forces. Godlyman meets him coming off a plane. Apparently, Billy is the one who found the landlady in the apartment. I don't know why they're starting this investigation now, four years later. It seems like what should have happened is I'm not, they do... I'm not, com- I'm not convinced that this is four years later. It's definitely yeah. four years later. It's four years later because of, I think, an editing mistake. They shouldn't have shown us him stabbing that woman until after the four years later card. The whole, Everything at the beginning should have just been the wedding and then the crash. And then mm-hmm. you go four years later. But it doesn't make any sense to show him kill the woman because he kills her before we even see the car accident. Right. And then it says four years later, Storm Island. Mm. But it's definitely later because Billy's in the military now. Right. That's true. Yeah, but he was about to try to do that again anyways. And so maybe it worked right away. But But it was also 1940 at the beginning. Yeah. And now it's 44, which is the year of the D-Day. Touche. Yeah. And he's got a mustache. Well, he's got a mustache now. Takes at least four years. Four years. (laughs) (laughs) Some people takes more time. (laughs) Richard's been trying so desperately for a mustache. (laughs) Billy tells them how disgusted he is that his hero Henry Faber turned out to be a German spy. Anyway, what do you want me for? They take him to their offices and present Billy with photographs of German officers in their graduating classes. They ask Billy to find a picture of Faber amongst the photos. We get Billy's POV looking through a magnifying glass at several group photos before he finds Henry Faber's face in a class. Yeah, this definitely would have happened a week after yeah. they found the body. Well, that's him. That's Faber to the life. Look, Admiral Wilhelm Canaris, the head of German intelligence. And right behind him is young student, the Needle. So I guess the needle from the title is a nickname of Faber's. We cut to Faber limping around now as a man helps him untie a boat to set sail for Storm Island. Faber takes the boat Heather out to sea. 
Back at British Intelligence, we get Faber's whole backstory. Because his father was posted to Washington as a German military attaché, Faber speaks fluent English from attending school there. But back in Germany, the boy rebelled constantly against authority and was often flogged for it. Faber graduated top of his class and was sent to a war school where he befriended Canaris, the current head of German intelligence. In 31, he met personally with Adolf Hitler, and two years later, when Hitler rose to power, he made Faber a captain. As we're learning all this, we see Faber park his boat and hike through a thick of trees on his way to the military base, overloaded with planes and helicopters. Hitler will be pleased to learn that this entire airfield is actually a matte painting. But obviously, it's only a matte painting for the movie, and Faber needs to get closer. <laughs> <laughs> He just walks up to it and pushes it over. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. That's crazy that we took all those pictures from right here. (laughs) In broad daylight, Faber crawls up to a fence around the base and cuts his way in with some wire cutters. He hides in an armory tent while a jeep full of military police roll by. Then he rushes to one of the planes and notices something is amiss. He bumps into the propeller blade, which promptly falls off of the plane. (laughs) And we're entreated to a series of inserts as Faber notices that these planes are fake constructed from plywood for the express purposes of fooling an aerial photographer. The implication is clear, but unfortunately, Hitler's astrologer is correct, and Patton (laughs) has no real force here because he intends to attack Normandy. I mean, I think it's brilliant. Yeah. And they look pretty convincing, even even from where he was standing originally outside the gates. Like, you really couldn't tell. Because they don't know if it's going to be aerial photography or if it's going to be people taking this picture from the trees. Right, and so, like, he literally had to get under this thing to to see that it was cardboard. Yeah, like, he literally bumped into it before he noticed they were fake. Yeah. Uh, It reminded me of, uh, in Seattle, the Boeing plant was camouflaged as a neighborhood. I brought up the picture here so you guys can see it. Oh, that's interesting. So this is actually a, a, a U.S airplane manufacturing facility but it's got paved roads and fake houses ah. that's interesting but it's all underneath right that. It's yeah, just yeah, a, yeah it's just a roof facade that reminds me of um what was the last time where we saw a place disguised for aerial photography purposes this is a podcast question yes oh <laughs> yeah because i'm just like i don't know stranger things i like... could tell you what it was disguised as and i could tell you what was underneath it what's underneath it is a bit of a spoiler okay um it was disguised. Oh, wait, 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 oh. wait, wait, wait. It was um, the pot field of, yeah. field of uh, uh, it, it was, was disguised a, as a swimming pool. It was a swimming pool, <laughs> but underneath it was a marijuana lab. Yeah. I got it. You got it. Good job. What movie was that? Um, I mean, it was a Cheech and Chong movie. I'm trying to remember the Cheech so, and Chong's so next I. movie. <laughs> I am also trying to remember. Cheech and Chong's. Up no, in, that it was Up in Smoke or No, not Up in Smoke. No, Up in Smoke was the first one, but we covered the second one. We covered next last movie in year. 80. What do we cover in What did we cover this year? What was it called? Nice Dreams? I think that's it. Yeah. Good job. Thank you. Did I come up with it before you? Uh no, I mean, I knew what the titles for both of them were. I'm still not 100% sure which one has the pool <laughs> with the pot lab underneath it. No, it was it, it was Nice Dreams that, okay, that yeah. had that one. Yeah. Cuz that was the one where they had the ice cream truck. Right. That's right. Because it said nice dreams on the ice cream truck. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Because <laughs> it also said ice creams on the ice cream yes. truck before they changed it. Yes. And they were selling pot out of the ice cream truck. And there truck. was pot in the pot lab. Yeah. Because none of the other Chicha Chong movies have pot <laughs> yeah, in It's the only one. <laughs> Faber takes several photographs of the fake planes to completely communicate the deception to Hitler. 
It's really bizarre how freely Faber can run around this airfield without anyone noticing him. Although, I would guess it's very sparsely attended to. Yeah. Because they're not, not real planes. There. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, I guess you would have to maintain the facade by having people There moving. are some people there that seem to be on a patrol, but yeah, cause, what cause, kind of easy detail is that? Just, like, <laughs> drive loops around our fake airplanes. Well, apparently too easy, because yeah. they didn't notice this guy. <laughs> That's the problem when you give people an easy job like that. This was a true historical effort nicknamed Operation Fortitude, which involved large numbers of fake tanks, planes, and helicopters. The operation was so successful that even after the attack at Normandy, German kept a force prepared for a second wave at Calais, but it obviously never came because the second invasion force was never real in the first place. Faber escapes the base through the same fence holes and limps through the wilderness back to his boat where he finds a British officer on board. Good evening. Good evening. And who might you be? I should be asking who you are. You're on my boat. The man asks what Faber has in his bag, and he seems to freely admit that he's carrying a camera and binoculars. He starts to take the backpack off when a second man appears behind him with his gun raised. Faber hands his cane to the first officer and raises his arms as the second man digs through his backpack. At an opportune moment, Faber swings an elbow back to knock the second man down, and switches open the knife again to stab the officer holding his cane in the gut. The officer fires his pistol into the air as he falls back into the water. Faber turns around and stabs the other fallen man as well. I was surprised that he didn't try to, because when he took the boat in the first place, he told the guy he was bird watching. Right. And I was like, I figured when he fully admitted to having the camera and the binoculars, he was going to try to sell that here. And he didn't even bother. He just stabs the guy. I think it was too suspicious how close he was to yeah. the airfield. Well, he did say that, that he also had uh, like uh, guidebooks or something. Guidebooks or journals yeah. or like. Do you recall the last time somebody claimed to be bird watching in order to, to have surveillance in a. The dogs of war. Of war. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then they quizzed him about birds. And, and he war. knew. Yeah. He knew his birds. We cut away to a short, sweaty man waiting outside of a phone booth. When it rings, he steps inside and agrees to a meeting time with presumably Faber. Later, we see the man pick Faber up in a car and he hands off a pack of photographs, probably the ones of the airfield. It sounds like this isn't the proper military channel for these photos. This is a third party offering to keep Faber's possessions safe until such a time as he might need them back. I think he was worried he might not be able to get out of the country with them. Right. Or if, or at the very least, if he's caught, at least the photographs will have made it. Right. He's giving him an envelope of prints right. of the photographs. So they're not the official, like the, the original negatives. It seems like it would be awful suspicious if I was a photograph developer. And, oh, and a bunch it, of fake airplanes. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. I'm sure he developed his own film for no, this. No, he went to Savon's. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing. Yeah, like, we don't know anything about what he's done in the last four years, so he could very well have set up a lab somewhere. Yeah. But it, it seemed like this 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 meeting was so impromptu, like, that, that he wouldn't be prepared to have a full photo development kit with him. Who right. knows? And, and he's, on, he's on, like, a, a, a ticking clock here in terms of getting... Right. You know, doing the surveillance, getting to Storm Island and getting picked up within his time frame. Yeah. The handoff concluded, Faber tells the driver to pull over and let the short guy out with the package. But the man only gets a few steps down the road before another car pulls up and a team of British agents swarm him to collect the evidence. It seems Faber has grown a tail in town. He notices quickly through the back window of the car that they're being followed. He asks his driver to pull over so he can sneak through a building off the road. 
He does a big loop around the building to confuse the men following him. Back at the British intelligence office, the agents who swarmed Faber's friend look through the photographs he's taken. They understand that he knows the airfield is fake, and consequently that Patton intends to strike Normandy. If Faber is able to communicate this message to German high command, it could cost the Allied forces the war. As far as the Germans are concerned, there are only two possible places for an Allied invasion of Europe. And they're right. From East Anglia here to the Pardee Calais, or from the south coast of England to the beaches of Normandy. Operation Overlord has decided on Normandy. I feel like the obvious solution here is to change your attack plan if you think the enemy knows your next move. I'm surprised they would count on Faber not having told anyone this information for several days. Even if that is what happens, yeah. I feel like, oh, a spy already knew. Maybe we shouldn't do that because that, that information is out there already. Yeah. yeah. Find him, Godleyman. It could cost us the bloody war. Inspector Godleyman, who we've seen on Faber's trail this whole time, is now meeting with someone from the station to determine the most likely train that Faber left on. They expect that he'll take the train to Liverpool, and Godleyman asks for men to be ready at the station to apprehend him. He also orders that the train be stopped so that he might board and investigate personally. They bring Billy along to identify Faber if they see him on the train. This seems like a bad move. Yeah. I guess he's hoping that mustache is going to pay off. Right. But it's like, you have a photograph of him now. You should know what he looks like. Yeah. And you don't need to bring someone who Faber will recognize. They dress Billy up as an employee of the train company, but unfortunately for Billy, Faber recognizes him first. Faber lures Billy through the train car to a connecting passage between cars and then pulls the knife on him. He asks Billy where they're planning to catch him, and Billy lies that they'll be waiting at Glasgow Station, when earlier we heard the inspector suggest Liverpool. So they finally let you in the army, did they, Billy? Congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> Faber stabs Billy in the chest, and the inspector finds the body only seconds before Faber jumps off the train. Later we see Faber wandering through a town at night when he stumbles across a motorcycle, and then we cut immediately to him driving it. Eventually, it runs out of gas, and he pushes it into a river. We see Faber being driven by a man who picked him up as a hitchhiker and claiming his car broke down. Faber is dropped off outside a movie theater and heads in for a screening, which starts with a war newsreel. Outside the theater, by the way, are several movie posters. The only legible ones are a poster for Johnny Vagabond, a.k.a. Johnny Come Lately, 1943, and another one for Song of the Open Road, 1944. Amazingly, the newsreel seems to be speaking to Faber's exact conundrum, because it mentions that Hitler is doomed to fail unless he can somehow learn when and where the Allied forces plan to strike. This is information Faber knows himself, and which he could communicate by radio with many people, but somewhat arbitrarily we've decided that he needs to deliver the photographs in person directly to Hitler. Inside his head, Faber hears a replay of Muller's instructions that a U-boat will wait for him outside Storm Island for 12 hours once he gives a signal. That night, Faber steals a rowboat and later a small tugboat. He steers the craft directly toward Storm Island just as the storm blows in. We cut to Faber's face on the front page of a newspaper with the headline announcing that he's a spy and a serial murderer who uses a stiletto. The man who picked up Faber as a hitchhiker is presenting the newspaper to the police because he's embarrassed that he didn't sense Faber was a killer. They put in an emergency call to Scotland Yard who don't appreciate being woken in the middle of the night. I know it's late. It's late here too. We cut to the German U-boat bobbing through the sea off the shore of Storm Island just as, surprise, surprise, a terrible storm strikes. 
Faber points his tiny boat right into the heart of it. He tries to send a distress call out with Morse code, but he can't get a hold of anyone on the U-boat. The boat's battery dies, officially silencing his radio equipment. We cut to the interior of the U-boat where they received a partial message, but not enough to help Faber. Faber restarts the engine, powering up the batteries again, but we never see him tapping out another message, which I think implies that the equipment is no longer working. The waves are pounding against the small boat now, and splashing around inside, repeatedly knocking Faber to the floor. A rogue wave almost tears Faber off the side of the boat, but he holds tight. Eventually, the boat crashes full force into the rocky shores of Storm Island, and Faber is finally tossed overboard. Coincidentally, the last time we saw Donald Sutherland was in a movie where his two sons were thrown from a sinking ship, and only one survived. We see Faber climbing up onto the rocks and away from his boat, but still getting thrashed with water. We cut inside a stone cottage on the island, and a loud clattering downstairs wakes Lucy. She heads downstairs to investigate and finds a sopping wet Faber collapsed in their doorway. She calls to David for help, and we see him drag himself down the stairs. It looks from this shot like David has a below-the-knee amputation, but the actor is probably just folding his legs up and sliding down the stairs. Later, David informs Faber where he has shipwrecked, and asks if there was anyone else on board, or if the Coast Guard was aware of the trip. David, darling, what does it matter? It matters, because if he did, there may be men out there risking their lives looking for him. We can let them know that he's sitting here safe and sound. No, no, um... No, I, I, I did not notify the Coast Guard. Lucy escorts Faber to a guest room and lays him down on a bed. David is already jealous of the attention Lucy has shown their sudden guest and puts on a jacket to drive himself to their neighbor Tom's house. I was wondering how he was driving. I think it's one of those handles that they put on the like a, steering wheel. Right. I, I mean, it, which seems pretty like advanced to have, but... Yeah. Um, we also see that he has prosthetic legs. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I, but I was like, I was like, can you drive with those? I mean, I guess you, like, I'm like, I conceivably, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I'm sure you can. It's just that God, like the, the these these roads don't seem very forgiving. Yeah. It's not like the woman in the Visitor, where it's like, how are you driving a car? You're paralyzed from the neck down. Yeah. Or I guess she was paralyzed from the waist down, right? Because she got shot in the spine, the lower spine. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Lucy asks what she should do if the strange man wakes up, but he doesn't bother to answer. Then, we get one of the first line reads from their child together, Joe, who has been horrendously dubbed over by a full-grown adult, despite appearing to recite all the lines correctly. Who's that man in my room, Mommy? The next morning, as Faber sleeps, Lucy and Joe take a bath together. She tells Joe that she must cut his hair soon after their guest mistook him for a girl. I'm guessing this is either because the actor was an actual girl or to indicate that their isolation here means that they don't partake in societal norms. They're just like, oh, nobody asks about his haircut, so we didn't cut it. Yeah. If you didn't, would it grow and grow and grow? Yes. Would grow down, don't you? (laughs) After Lucy steps out of the tub to dry herself off, she turns around and notices Faber in the doorway. She slowly lowers her towel and turns to point her boobs right at him while making a shocked face where most people might rotate their nudity away from a stranger. Faber slowly backs out of the room without a word. Faber dresses himself in some of David's clothes, and we see him switch a film canister from his wet clothes to his new jacket pocket. That night, Faber overhears the married couple discussing him. David still has many questions, but Lucy wishes he would lighten up. At a dinner table, he finally introduces himself to the couple using a fake name, Henry Baker. When they present him with a meal, Faber rushes through a bowl of soup. David seems really upset with how this man eats soup, 
and for a second, Faber tries to make polite conversation. I was fairly upset with how he was eating soup, too, though. Why? I was just slurping really fast. It's soup. Who cares? <laughs> David decides it's time for bed. On his way out of the room, David chastises Faber directly for heading out into such a terrible storm, but Faber readily admits his mistake. David asks for two sleeping pills from his wife because he intends to sleep soundly tonight. As she hands the pills to her husband, she gives Faber an odd glance. When they're alone, Lucy offers Faber more soup, which he turns down, and finally a bit of brandy. We cut to Lucy pouring them both glasses in front of a fireplace. Lucy tells him all about their situation here. She says they've been here four years, and their supplies are replenished every other Monday. Their only friend is Tom, their shepherd, who operates a nearby lighthouse. He also has a radio for emergencies. Faber calls out how lonely they must be here, and Lucy explains how David lost his legs on their wedding day. She almost admits that moving to the island was not a mutual decision and quickly corrects herself. And then after the accident, he... Well, we both wanted to run away. And so he came here. She admits now that it may have been a terrible mistake, and when Faber mentions how sad it is, Lucy tries to explain that the accident was their own fault. Obviously, it's not really her fault at all, because she warned him not to drive like that before yeah. they crashed. No, I meant it was terribly sad... Because you're so unhappy now. Is it that obvious? Lucy is deadly honest with Faber now and admits that David has changed and is a completely different person than he was when they came here. She also feels bad for Joe that he's so far from his grandparents who love him. Faber tells Lucy that Joe is lucky to be so loved and Lucy tries to wave away the compliment by suggesting that all parents love their children Faber explains that, no, all parents do not love their children, and it's the last mention we'll hear of Faber's difficult upbringing, which we hinted at earlier when we mentioned that Faber's childhood rebelliousness was beaten out of him before he was sent to war school. Some parents, some parents use their children, set goals for them, goals they weren't able to attain in their lives. Hardly love, do you think? Lucy admits that she's only stuck around to convince herself that she hasn't completely wasted the last four years. When she learns Faber is unmarried, she can't understand why. They're a choice or bad luck. I think it's good luck to be married. But yes, no. Sometimes I imagine myself married. To another man. Lucy is surprised at the path of their conversation and snaps the stem of her wine glass in her hands, cutting herself in the process. Faber wraps the wound in a napkin and moves in for a kiss. She resists for just a moment, but they're suddenly all over each other, and Lucy is quickly unbuttoning her gown. We dip to black and come back up on the docks where investigators are trying to track Faber down. The sailors have basically reached a consensus that if Faber left in the storm, he has surely drowned but Inspector Godlyman alone isn't buying it. He'd be drowned. I believe that when I see the body. That morning, Joe and David are apparently out checking on their sheep when Faber enters the kitchen to apologize to Lucy for the events of the previous night. He promises it won't happen again. Do you regret it? Faber seems surprised by this response and takes her on a walk out to the wreckage of his boat. They continue their path, and she's fascinated to learn that he's a writer with a particular focus on the personal isolation that war can cause. But I thought war was meant to bring people closer together. What? No. Where did you hear that? 
Another storm sets in, and Lucy and Faber take shelter in a cave on the beach. She asks about his writing and if there's a woman in his story, and he says that the woman in his story cheats on her husband, and then the husband kills her. (laughs) (laughs) It seems like a direct attack. Yeah, like, because he broke her heart. Yeah, and he's smiling when he says it, too. And she's like, well, gotta go. (laughs) Obviously, she takes this as a personal criticism and doesn't wait for the rain to let up before heading home. Back around the dining table, David invites Faber to see Tom's radio equipment. Before they leave, Lucy worries out loud to Faber that David knows what happened between them. On the drive to Tom's place, David asks why Faber spends his time writing instead of serving in the armed forces and learns that he was injured and removed from duty. I don't know if he's affecting this limp and it was a fake or mm. if it was just an excuse to have a cane for his cover. I thought he was, he's was he been limping ever since he jumped out that window, though. Out which window? He jumped out the window to get away from the, the guys that were chasing him. On the train? No, after he after he killed his spy buddy and he jumped out uh, of a window, wasn't didn't that where he started limping? I don't know, maybe. Oh, maybe I'm mistaken. Maybe no, he, you could be right. Maybe he was limping before that too. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't remember when the limp started exactly. I think the first time I noticed it is when he was renting the boat from the guy, or I guess buying. Which the is boat. after he jumped out a window. Yeah. Do you remember the last time a guy jumped out of a window to escape people who were coming after him and then had a limp? <laughs> It was probably more than a limp, I guess. He was dead. No, he wasn't dead. (laughs) (laughs) What was it? Zorro the Gay Blade. Oh, Oh, yeah. That's good. He did have a limp. Yeah. David talks about the Spitfires he used to fly and asks Faber if he has any particular interest in planes, but Faber claims not to. David sends Faber into Tom's house to rouse him, and Faber finds Tom passed out in the radio room. As Faber returns to David's vehicle, David pulls out a shotgun and cocks it in Faber's direction. You lied to me, didn't you? What are you talking about? You said you weren't interested in aircraft. I'm not. Oh, but you are. Oh, you're very interested. Give me the film. What film? The can of film I found in your pocket this morning. This seems really dangerous to send him into a house with a functional radio system yeah if you already believed him to be a german spy well and to have found his film and put it back right because he gave it back to him and now he's asking for it right i'm like but, if this was your plan all along to try to get the film from him why you should have you intercepted have, it or destroyed it right yeah and so we're assuming that this is these are process negatives that he's got right and and that david looked at, at the them negatives. and saw that they're airplanes mm-hmm. yeah but not airplanes. <laughs> yeah. He <laughs> saw like, that they weren't airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, there you go. Either way, very interested in aircraft. Look, I told you I wasn't interested in airplanes. <laughs> very interested in fabricated wooden airplanes. David demands he hands over the film and instructs Faber to crawl to him on his knees to deliver it. When Faber is within reach, he tosses the canister in David's face and then yanks away the shotgun before flipping open his stiletto to stab David. David deflects the knife, and the two are caught in a wrestling match. Eventually, Faber lifts David out of the vehicle and cracks him across the face with the butt of his own gun, knocking him unconscious. Faber throws David's gun and canes off a cliff into the sea. When he tries to do the same to David, David wakes up, and they fight with each other on the edge of the cliff. Ultimately, Faber succeeds in tossing David to the rocks below, but just as he turns around, he sees Lucy and Joe coming up the path to Tom's place. He intercepts them in the vehicle and claims David and Tom are drinking together. They all head back to their home. Faber offers to collect David later when they've had some dinner. 
That night, we see the U-boat waiting off the coast again. Faber comments on how late it is and prepares to collect David, but Lucy takes him up to their bedroom instead, since there's no risk of David showing up without his vehicle. So this was another dumb mistake. He yeah. should have just gone anyway and right. gotten him. Right, this was your chance. Like, yeah, this this was this was where he really screwed up. Like, yeah. he just needed to go now. But he was just like, eh, war or sex, war or sex. They have more sex, and we cut to a phone ringing at Scotland Yard. Godlyman speaks with the chief inspector, who delivers a message directly from Churchill. They're moving forward with the Normandy plan, and he had better catch Faber before word gets out. I feel like this isn't information that Scotland Yard needs to know. Yeah. Just say, it's important to catch this guy. End of story. I'm Churchill. Do what I said. I'm not sure why they're so confident that word has not already gotten out. The next morning, Joe walks in on Faber and Lucy in bed together. Faber dresses and rushes out the door across the island to use Tom's radio equipment to send his important message, but the U-boat only intended to wait until 6 for the message, and it is exactly 6 o'clock now. He really should have sent it last night when he had the chance. Instead of having sex for 12 hours. Yeah. (laughs) She finally fell asleep. I can go. He dials out to the U-boat and tries to open communications. Zingvogel, here is the Nadel. Kommen. It's not super noticeable, but Sutherland is being dubbed over for the German dialogue here. Oh, I was uh, I was going to say, I'm like, oh, he knows German. Yeah, That's it great. Was, it looks really impressive because the lip match is really good. Yeah. But it's, they brought in somebody to do the German Okay, well, the, I, but the voice match, too, was pretty good because I was yeah. like, I, I believed it was him. Yeah, I agree. On Faber's watch, he still has about a minute to six, but on the boat, they're already prepping to turn off their communications. Tom walks in on Faber broadcasting in German. We cut back to Lucy and Joe on a walk, and by complete coincidence, they spot David's body floating in the water by the rocks. Lucy tells her son to wait at the top of this terrifying cliff face while she inspects the shape she believes to be David in the water. I was convinced immediately that this kid was going to wander off a cliff to his death, but it doesn't happen. Lucy finds David in the water and rolls him over to confirm her husband is deceased. She sobs and holds him close, screaming for help to the heavens, and then the camera finds Joe at the top of the cliff, and this is where I was worried he was going to try and help her and right? then slip yeah. and fall was... down. It's like, stop saying help! Yes, stop, stop screaming for help, because literally if, if your kid is up there, it's like, oh, my mom wants me to come help her. Yeah, he's the only person that could hear you on the whole planet. Yeah, oh, Jesus, I was so worried here. We cut right to her running home, carrying Joe. She sets him down on his bed and asks him to wait here while she takes care of some things. She notices through the window that Faber is returning from Tom's place. Before she can tell Faber what she's discovered, he calls out to her. Your husband refuses to come back. And in doing so, Faber has given himself away. Because she knows her husband has been dead for at least a day, so he can't have just refused to come home. Lucy tries to quickly disguise what she knows, but admits to having gone for a walk with Joe, and then Joe almost messes it up for everybody. We saw something in the water. We were looking at the wreck of your boat. Quite a mess, isn't it, Joe? To make certain that Faber is lying to her, she asks if he's just seen David before heading over, and he confirms. She picks up Joe <laughs> like and rushes... Like, that's not a suspicious question at right, all. Right, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, you, you just saw him just now? Yeah. We found something in the water. You just saw him? <laughs> yep. He's fine. A-OK. I would have just been like, oh, I knocked on the door for a while. <laughs> Couldn't rouse him. They must yeah. be in there drinking. I mean, I suppose he was trying to de- deflect the idea that she would then go and try to bring him home. Yeah, maybe. If, if she's like, oh, he's refusing to come back again. and 
She picks up Joe and rushes him to the vehicle so they can drive to Tom's place and radio for help. Somehow, Faber hasn't noticed that she's panicking and steps outside to hand her the keys. Here are the keys. His intonation for this line read reminded me of the father in Home Sweet Home looking for peas on Thanksgiving. Where are the peas? <laughs> Faber asks where she thinks she's going, and she says that she was going to collect David, but he urges her to let it wait and invites Lucy and Joe on a picnic. Back in the house later, we hear Faber reading a book to Joe, specifically Oliver Wilde's The Happy Prince, and it sounds kind of morbid. I am going to the house of death, said the swallow. Death is the brother of sleep, is he not? And he kissed the happy prince and fell down dead at his feet. In the kitchen, we see Lucy preparing a glass of milk and mashing in some of David's medication. I assumed at first that she was drugging Faber, but she gives the glass to Joe because she wants him asleep as soon as possible. And shutting up. (laughs) It's like, how about give a little bit to your kid to help him sleep and then give all of the rest of it to Faber. Yeah. She gives Joe permission to sleep on the couch in front of the fire, which Joe seems excited about. We cut right to her and Faber having more sex. So right now she knows that her husband is dead, her kid is sleeping near an open flame, (laughs) and they're about to lose the war. (laughs) (laughs) What is it? Sleeping with the enemy? Yeah. The score here is calamitous because of the insane mixed feelings that must be rushing around Lucy's head. We see a tear slide down her cheek. We cut back to sea for one more shot of U-53, Faber's ride home, and then we cut to Scotland Yard, where only three islands still haven't checked in to report an all-clear. What islands did you say haven't reported? Santa Vista, Euston, Storm, and that one's not worth worrying about. His reasoning is that Tom, Storm Island's radio man, is famously difficult to reach on account of his rampant alcoholism. Godlyman is growing impatient and starts planning a way to visit the islands in person to check them himself. Back in her bedroom, Lucy rises from the sheets and collects the keys from Faber's pocket. In the kitchen downstairs, she dresses warm and loads a revolver before snagging Joe from his couch bed. She runs with Joe out into the rain and tosses him into the vehicle before speeding away. Faber notices them leaving from the bedroom window and races to stop them. He's barely not fast enough and she blasts through the wooden gate and down the path to Tom's place, intending to radio for help again. Faber follows them on foot the full distance. The vehicle gets caught in some mud, and so Lucy has to carry Joe the last section of the trip. When she reaches Tom's house, she calls for him repeatedly but gets no response. She stashes Joe in a bedroom, but accidentally drops her gun on the floor beside the bed. She finds Tom face down in the radio room and shakes him to wake him up until she realizes he's been stabbed and bled out here on the floor. We cut back outside, where Faber jogs past the abandoned vehicle. Lucy sits down at the radio and tries to send out an emergency broadcast to whoever can hear her. Back at Scotland Yard, they receive the SOS signal and prepare an immediate response. Lucy hears Faber call her from downstairs and checks her pocket for the gun but realizes she dropped it. She finds another shotgun in the house and rushes to load it but takes a moment to find shells. She flicks off the lights to disguise her location, and when Faber enters the house, she takes a shot but misses him. Lucy moves around the ground floor, barricading all the windows. She's horrified when she notices Joe coming down the stairs to check on her. Come upstairs! Oh, I'm cold! She picks Joe up and practically tosses him halfway up the stairs toward his bed, when Faber punches in the window in a door. He counted her shots and knows that Lucy is out of shotgun shells. How did he know how many shotgun shells there were in this house? Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was odd. He promises not to hurt her and moves to open the door that he punched a hole in. 
When he gets his hand on the door lock to let himself in, Lucy snatches up an axe and drives it down hard against Faber's hand, slashing off a couple fingers in the process. Oh, man, this got me. It's this so brutal. Really, really dramatic. Yeah. <laughs> Faber collapses outside, nauseous from the injury. Me and too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> seriously. <laughs> and Lucy rushes back upstairs to the radio room to help Joe. She hops back on the radio and communicates all the important information to Scotland Yard. While outside, we see Faber building what looks like a bomb. He has various liquid solutions that he's pouring into a container. Scotland Yard insists that Lucy destroy the radio, which she is using to communicate with them, to prevent Faber from sending out enemy signals with it. Understandably, Lucy is terrified to destroy her only means of communication, but they assure her they are on their way. Why? Please don't. No, I can't do that. I've got no one else here to help me. Faber tosses what turns out to be a sort of Molotov cocktail through the window downstairs and sets a closet ablaze. The team from Scotland Yard hop on a helicopter to speed directly to Storm Island. Lucy spends so much time putting out the fire downstairs that when she gets back to the radio room, she finds Faber with his hand around Joe's neck. He picks up Joe and sets him on the desk beside the radio. He asks Lucy to retrieve a bottle of whiskey from the next room. Faber starts the radio and begins speaking in German to the U-boat at sea, still awaiting his signal. Lucy knows that she must act fast, but doesn't see a viable plan of action when she suddenly stares into a lamp hanging above her. She slowly unscrews the bulb and then reaches up with a nail to jam it in the socket just as Faber is sharing his most pertinent information. General Patton's army is... The lamp shorts out and Lucy has killed the electricity to the whole house. Faber rushes in to find her and her index and middle fingers are fully black from where she was holding the nail. Like, down to her hand, they're black and Yeah, yeah. I feel like, I mean, I realize you're trying to act quickly, but grab it with, like, a piece of cloth or something, like, mm-hmm. on your sleeve, or, like, there was definitely sheets and pillows around. Nah, do it with your hand. Yeah. Faber realizes she may have just won the war. The war has come down to the two of us. Do you know that? He tells her that he had no choice in his actions and apologizes for what he's done. He stands and leaves the house immediately. Outside, he notices the U-boat off the coast and considers rowing a nearby boat directly to it with his message. Once again, Lucy instructs Joe to hold still while Mommy does some chores. She's found the handgun under Joe's bed and chases Faber down with it. As she fires on him, the bullets ricochet off nearby rocks and Faber runs faster and faster to the boat on the beach. Her fourth shot gets him in the leg and he takes a nasty tumble down some rocks, but survives. Faber gets to the boat and pushes it out into the water while Lucy pleads with him to give up, not wanting to shoot him anymore. She hits him again with her final shot, knocking him back into the water, but he's still moving. When Faber finally climbs into the boat to leave, Lucy collapses on shore, having failed to stop him. He watches her on the rocks in blurred vision for a moment, and then he tips forward dead in the boat. And we fade to black for our credits. That's Eye of the Needle. Yeah. Yeah, I I couldn't believe that they ended it here. I like, mean, that's the end of the story. They, yeah, I, I, I mean, I guess. What like, else do you want to happen? Well, just like to show signs that someone's coming to get her. No, like, I mean... I, don't, I mean, I, I trust that she's fine now. I mean, There's I'm, no sure, threat I'm to sure somebody was, comes eventually, and she can survive for a while here without somebody showing up. But yeah. I mean, 
I feel like sh- that that was the choice she made when she shorted the radio. Yeah. She yeah. didn't matter if somebody showed up or not. I'm going to sacrifice myself to win this war. Mm. But it would have been fun if she got back up to the top and the house had just completely burned down. The, <laughs> the, the radio house was just completely engulfed in flames. She's like, oh, God, I didn't put out all the fire before I left. Or I left my kid in here and told him to wait. And then she just gets hit with, like, <laughs> rifle fire from the guys on the top of the U-boat. And that's the end. No, she won the war. She saved her kid. Um, she didn't save her husband. But everybody else is fine. And actually, she and her kid are probably gonna have a much better life yeah (laughs) because they get to leave storm island and go rejoin society um but yeah this is a really uh fascinating movie and like i said i don't know if storm island exists um but i beyond uh the fact that there was this sort of fake airplane airfield uh it's not a true story that it's based on Right, right but it was still really interesting to show how a war could be decided by these two people trapped in a love triangle together. Yeah. It was it was very captivating. Like yeah. I, you know, I I I stayed engaged with the movie the entire time, you know. And 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 not not a crazy amount of stuff happens, but it was still just yeah, very captivating. Yeah. Uh when he was on the run and eventually made his way to the island. I was just like, oh, well, this is the end game. This movie's probably got about like another 10 minutes left. And you pulled <laughs> it up and you're like, oh, it's not halfway over. It's not even halfway. I was like, what's going to happen for the next 40 minutes? Yeah. And then it's just like it becomes this whole other movie of it, it becomes like this more of a a tension thriller versus yeah. like a yeah. getaway thriller. And mm-hmm. I can never really get a handle on if he has genuine feelings for her. It seems like he does when he wastes a 12 hour window sleeping with her. Yeah. Yeah. Well, like, and the fact that he doesn't even kill her at the end when that would be the absolute easiest thing to do instead, go get me whiskey. It's just like, you know, like if you cared that much, just shoot these two people in the head right now and move on with it. He's and, killed everyone else. And yeah. you also get the impression when he's sitting next to her and he's like, oh, you may have just won the war. Like, it, you get the impression that it's going through his head like, man, if I was just a person who came to this island, it could have, like, I could have met you and then we could have just had our lives mm-hmm. and raised this kid yeah. on this island. But because I had to be a German spy in this situation, it's all gone to shit now. But then he comes up with, wait, there's actually one way I could do this without the radio. And it leads to this whole, like... Uh, denouement scene with him trying to just manually deliver the message to the u-boat which i thought was just an interesting twist to add to the end of it because it could have been over with them sitting on the floor there and presumably he still has the film right i think he has it on him yeah but even if he didn't have the film he could deliver a message right and if hitler trusts his words then he shouldn't need the evidence if it's like hey me the guy who you trust a lot and the psychic are both telling you the same thing <laughs> that these planes were fake and let's not bother with this uh this war front but yeah i really enjoyed it yeah. definitely a thumbs up oh me. yeah thumbs up yeah it's a thumbs up for sure um do we know where this is going letterboxed all right uh i have this one at uh number 17 out of 97 i thought it was pretty darn good um i have it below history of the world part one and above miss 45 all right uh, I have it at number 20, uh, which puts it below Blowout, but above Sphinx. Another Sleeping with the Enemy kind of film. Yeah. Um, I have it in 22, which is just under The Postman Always Rings Twice, which is kind of a similar feel, that movie, um, and just above American Pop. 
Our director here was Richard Marquand. After a screening of this film, George Lucas decided that director Marquand was the right person to finish the original Star Wars trilogy. He was particularly impressed with the speed and quality of the production with such a small budget. Lucas was also feuding with the DGA at the time, and specifically chose a non-member. Marquand's credits were mostly for television miniseries and documentary format prior to this, and after this he helms Return of the Jedi, Until September, Jagged Edge, Hearts of Fire, and that's it. Writer Ken Follett, this remains the only feature film adaptation of Follett's work, though several of his novels have been produced as TV movies. Because of his spy novels, Follett directly inspired the character of Follett in last season's Hopscotch. Follett was the idiot spy character that was always tailing Walter Matthau. Mm. I think this movie deserves a remake, though. For sure. I, I would totally I, go for that. Yeah, I think it could get a little bit of... Uh, Although I'm not sure what to improve on really yeah i mean i there's nothing particularly wrong with it but i think that i think that you could redo it and just get a little different style on it sure yeah the adaptation was done by stanley mann who previously wrote the screenplays for damien omen 2 and meteor and after this he writes both firestarter and conan the destroyer in 84 music here came from miklos roja he has three Oscars for the scores to Ben-Hur, A Double Life, and Spellbound. He also scores Double Indemnity, The Lost Weekend, Adam's Rib, The Asphalt Jungle, and most recently Time After Time. We'll hear his work next in Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Cinematographer Alan Hume DP'd a bunch of the Carry On series. We've seen his work this season on Caveman and For Your Eyes Only, and he's back for Watcher in the Woods. He followed Marquand to Return of the Jedi, and later lights Octopussy, Supergirl, View to a Kill, Life Force, yeah. and later A Fish Called Wanda. Editor Sean Barton cut Return of the Jedi and The Fly 2. Donald Sutherland played Faber. This was Sutherland's third time in five years playing a killer in World War II after The Eagle Has Landed and The Disappearance in 76 and 77 respectively. It was also his third time in five years playing a Nazi or the son of a Nazi after Bear Island and the Eagle has landed. Well, I haven't seen any of those, and I was really pretty surprised. <laughs> to see him as a Nazi <laughs> or a murderer? As, yeah, to see him as the bad guy and the murderer and the, and the German. I was just like, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. when he stabs that woman, I was yeah. like, oh my. Yeah, because he's always <laughs> such a sweet guy and yeah. stuff that, that we've seen. By complete coincidence, Sutherland had previously played a professor at Faber College in John Landis's Animal House. We've seen him so far in MASH for Patreon listeners and in Nothing Personal and Ordinary People last season. He's back next week in Gas. Stephen McKenna played Lieutenant. He was John Lennon in Richard Marquand's Birth of the Beatles film. Philip Martin Brown played Billy Parkin. He was Constable One in Sleepy Hollow and Tufty Thessinger in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Kate Nelligan played Lucy Rose. Prior to this, Nelligan and Sutherland had starred together as husband and wife in 1977's TV movie Bethune. She also plays Lana Ravine in Carl Reiner's erotic thriller parody Fatal Instinct, where she plots with her boyfriend to kill her husband and to benefit from a triple indemnity clause in his life insurance contract, which pays out $9 million if he is shot falls from a northbound train and drowns in a freshwater stream. <laughs> <laughs> Christopher Casanova played David Rose. Casanova? Casanova? Casanova. Plays David Rose. He was Edward in Three Men and a Little Lady. He was Palmer in Ace's Iron Eagle 3. And he's John Thatcher in A Knight's Tale. George Belbin 
played Lucy's father. He was Baron Frankenstein in 1970's Horror of Frankenstein. Faith Brooke played Lucy's mother. She played the Prime Minister in North Sea Hijack and David Niven's wife in The Sea Wolves from the same director. She also plays Louisa Bradley in The Razor's Edge. William Marrow played German radio operator. He was officer at Castle in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. A Nazi was in that movie? Nazi actor, should specify. Patrick Connor played Inspector Harris. He's a fatherly guard in Life Force and a cell guard in Brazil. Ian Bannon played Godlyman. He was Jack O'Shea in Waking Ned Divine and the Leper in Braveheart. He was also Crow in the original Flight of the Phoenix. Rupert Fraser played Muller. He was Thompson in John Carter and Jim's father in Empire of the Sun. Alex McCrindle played Tom. He's General Dodonna in Star Wars. Am I saying that right? Dodonna? Uh... D-O-D-O-N-N-A. Dodonna? That's gotta be it. Dodonna. Yeah, yeah I would say <laughs> Dodonna. John Bennett played Kleinman. Do you guys recall the last time we mentioned the name Kleinman? No. The Kleinman Institute? Does that ring a bell? Oh, was that from the the one where the guy is, goes on the rant and... No. No. Simon? Yeah, I was thinking of Simon. It's not Simon, but it's kind of Simon-ish. The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Uh, she is sent to the Kleinman Institute because Klein is the German word for small. John Bennett also played Priest in The Fifth Element and Captain Holly in Watership Down. Steve Harwood played Sailor. We've seen him recently as Colonel Musgrove in Raiders, working beside William Hootkin's Major Eaton. He was also the general in Superman 2 who told Zod that he serves the American president. Rick Mayall played a sailor in this film. This was his first film credit. In America, he's best known as Drop Dead Fred in Drop Dead Fred, but outside the U.S., he's probably best known for The Young Ones or Black Adder. He's back this season for American Werewolf in London and Shock Treatment. So I we'll get more mail. Well, he's wonderful. I love Drop Dead Fred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Michael Josephs played German naval captain. He was Janus Gregetus, Emperor Palpatine's advisor in something <laughs> I, just, I just put what he played and not which movie john reese <laughs> plays german naval operator he was a sergeant in raiders last season bill nighy played squadron leader blankensop this was also his first film credit he plays davy jones in the pirates of the caribbean movies billy mack in love actually he's philip in Shaun of the dead and the voice of rattlesnake jake in rango I didn't even notice him. I didn't either. Yeah, I didn't didn't see him in there. Him and Mayall. I missed both of them. He's squadron leader Blankensop, so I'm guessing he's one of the people at the wedding at the beginning because those are the people that he's about to start working with the Uh, next day. Okay. And Rick Mayall must be one of the people on the dock when they're trying to figure out that the ship went down. Sure. I mean, uh, I mean, there were also I think there were also sailors on the train. Oh, men in navy uniforms, but. Tony Clarkin played Sergeant Major, uncredited. He was a stormtrooper in Empire and Return of the Jedi, and last season he was a thug in the pub from The Elephant Man. And Chris Parsons played Local Islander. He was Forlom, K-3PO, and a stormtrooper in Empire Strikes Back. He's a Nazi soldier in Raiders of the Lost Ark and a dinner guest in The Shining, probably our three biggest episodes so far. (laughs) Peter Ross Murray played Soldier, uncredited, and he was Nisad in Return of the Jedi. Those are all the credits I have. 
I think that's everything for Eye of the Needle. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to us. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing gas which IMDb describes like so. I don't envy whoever put this in. Susan Onspock stars in this comedy, oh, well, that's wrong, as a news reporter who investigates a story about stolen milk causing milk and gas prices to rise. During the course of her investigation, other people become involved, culminating in a multiple car chase. Wait, this was her movie? I, what? They don't (laughs) discuss milk price rise, do they? They do. She she or it's mostly the, about gas. Yeah, but that's what the movie's uh, called. Her, her her theory. Boy, we're going to discuss the. Let's her, just let's just finish yeah, off yeah. gas right now. Yeah. Her her theory was that the Vespucci com- milk company was selling milk to the military, which then the military dumps, and then raising bring the price of the, milk bring up. The, Yeah, it, it was so convoluted. Anyway, we leave you now with the trailer for Gas. Now, the comedy that pumps the fun into summer, gas. It flies, cries, rocks, rolls. It's greedy, speedy, fast, a blast. It'll fill you up, knock you down, break you up, and spin you around. It's gas. There is no relief. Rated R. Hello. I'm a sophisticate, and so can you. Is the name of our podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Anthony. And I'm another of your hosts, Sydney. And we're two queer millennials with ADHD. Who have been lying about our own cultural literacy. If you've ever been in a situation where you pretended to know more than you do about an important movie or a piece of literature. Yeah, or like a super cool band. Then this is the show for you. This is a show where we engage with the canon so that you don't have to. Topics for discussion will include such things as Is Carrie Brownstein the coolest person? Can anyone who likes the movie Chinatown be trusted? Why Tom Waits? Why? All of these questions and more will be answered on every episode of I'm a Sophisticate and So Can You. Available wherever you find your podcasts.